happen. What we're going to be reading this morning is the story of Achan. Some of you may be familiar with Achan. This is as Israel is going into the promised land to conquer the Canaanites, to clear out the heathen so that they can enjoy the blessings that God has for them in the promised land. What we read in chapter 7 of Joshua happens right after their victory at Jericho. So I want to give you some perspective of the circumstances here as we read. So we're going to read the entire chapter together. Let's start at verse 1 in Joshua 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Haven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even to Shebarim, and smote them in going down, whereof the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, and he and the elders of Israel, and put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before the enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon the face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they even have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning, and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, 
and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran unto the tent and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was, uh, was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. Let's stop and take a minute to pray, and then we will look at our, our lesson for this morning. Father, thank you again that you've given us your word. Lord, we so often take it for granted And it is such a privilege to have your words in our hands. Help us not to treat it as trivial, as just another book, but to know that it is our our guide. It is our handbook of how you want us to live, of what you want us to know. And so, Lord, as we look at this lesson today that you've given us in the book of Joshua, help us to learn the things that you want us to understand. I pray that you teach us through your spirit. Open our minds and our hearts to receive them. And Lord, use me as your instrument, as your spokesperson now. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and with strength. Give me wisdom and give me the words to say so that we might be challenged by you today. Lord, we want to hear from you. And so I pray that you would just use this time to accomplish your purpose and to do your work in us. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you again for your word. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you probably at least are familiar with the story of the children of Israel fighting against Ai, and we're putting it in the context of fellowship, because last week we talked about what Christian fellowship is, okay? That we all as believers, all who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, are, have fellowship together because we are one body. We are brought together in fellowship in Jesus Christ, okay? So we have that fellowship, and in that fellowship as believers then, we go through things together. There's a common life, not just a common bond. And the Bible tells us that we rejoice together, we weep together, and even on occasion we suffer together. And that suffering is not just part of the fellowship of believers, and suffering sometimes is God's hand of chastisement upon his children. Here, we read about suffering in the camp of Israel because of sin that was in the camp. 
suffering sometimes is the result of the sin in people's lives. It doesn't have to be the entire congregation. It can be one or two or a few people. Now, I'm not saying anybody here is perfect, and I'm not going to take a poll because I don't want to embarrass anybody, okay? If I asked you to raise your hands and said, who thinks they're perfect, um, hopefully none of us would raise our hands because we realize we all sin, all right? Even though we're forgiven, even though we're saved, we still fall on a regular basis, unfortunately. But the suffering that comes out of that, we all experience. That's part of fellowship. Because we are a common bond. We are a common body. And today I want to look at this sin of Achan and how it affected the entire camp of Israel and then apply some lessons to us individually as Christians and then corporately as God's church and see how we can understand and learn from these and grow in our Christian life. So I have four lessons that I want to look at from this passage today. And the first thing that we're going to look at is actually we're going to go to the end and look at Achan's confession, because the story is that as he is destroying the city of, or going and fighting against Jericho, remember they marched around the walls seven times, this is in the chapter previous to this, and on the seventh day they marched around the seven times and they blew the trumpets and the the walls fell down, and then they marched in and destroyed the city and took over the city. The only one that was saved was Rahab and her family. And God had told Israel, when you go into Jericho, you're to destroy everything. Destroy all the people except for Rahab and her family. Take all the silver and gold, and that is to be dedicated to me in the house of the Lord. Everything else was to be destroyed. Animals, clothing, tents, buildings, everything. And in fact, Joshua declares a curse at the end of uh, chapter 6, and he says, if anybody tries to rebuild this city, that a curse is going to be upon him. So God wants them to destroy all of it. In the course of the battle, Achan sees this garment and silver and gold, and he takes it. And at the end of chapter 7 in verse 21, it gives us his confession And it talks about how secret sin, and this is a secret sin because nobody else knows about it, but sin in general is enticing. Sin entices us. We cannot be deceived to think that sin is always ugly. Okay? Satan is the angel of light. Satan, as created by God, was one of the most and probably the most beautiful creature that God ever created. And he got full of himself. And that's why God threw him out of heaven. Because he said, I want to be like the Most High God. And we know, God says, there is no one like unto me. All will bow down and worship him. Satan wanted to be the worshipped rather than the worshiper. And so God tossed him out. But Satan makes sin look beautiful. And so sin is enticing to us. God doesn't, God, Satan doesn't tempt you with the things that you don't enjoy, with the things that don't appeal to you. Now, Satan doesn't know us like God does. Satan doesn't know our thoughts. He can't see into the future. He is a created being, but he watches us, and he's very perceptive and very wise, and so he knows our weaknesses. He knows what we are drawn to, the things that are the, the greatest temptation to us, and that's where he will try to bring us down. And here, in Achan's life, think about where Achan was and the whole 
congregation of the children of Israel. They just spent 40 years coming through the wilderness. Now they're going into the promised land, starting to conquer these cities and these other countries that are in there to clear them out so they can inherit the promised land. They really have had not a whole lot as they're marching through the wilderness for 40 years. And Achan sees this nice garment from Babylon. Babylon. It's beautiful, something he never had before. And then he sees the silver and the gold. He'd been told by God, everything is to be destroyed. The silver and gold are to be brought into the treasury. But the world's concept of what should happen goes like this. The tradition was, to the victor go the spoils, right? You conquer a land, you get to keep what you find. That's the way politics worked back then. In fact, you read through the whole Old Testament. It's a history of nations coming in and conquering Israel and taking their stuff. In the book of Daniel, we're studying in Bible study. The first chapter is about Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking the treasures out of the house of the Lord and taking people from Israel to go back to Babylon. So the rule for the world was, to the victor goes the spoils. And in Achan's mind, maybe this thought was, you know, I've kind of earned this, haven't I? And besides, it's not really a big thing. It's just a little bit of gold, a little bit of silver in one garment. But I've earned this. Why does God want us to destroy all this good stuff? It doesn't make sense. See, it was beautiful to him. It enticed him. It appealed to him because of his human nature. And that's where he fell. That's why Proverbs tells us, that we're not supposed to rely on our understanding. To him, it probably made sense. Even though God had commanded something, in his mind, maybe he's thinking, you know, I I don't know why we have to destroy all this. This is all good. We shouldn't have to destroy it. I can save just a little bit. And it's just a little bit. We'll get rid of everything else. We'll put all the treasure in the house of God. Nobody will even know. So it was beautiful. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 tell us this. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Now, I wonder if James, when he wrote that in the New Testament, was thinking of Achan, at least as one example of this, because that's the process that happened. In verse 21, look at what Achan says. He says, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 200, uh, shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. It starts with the enticement. We look. Satan looked. Okay? And it's not a, oh, there's something I noticed. Okay? It's a, oh, there's something, and it appeals to me, and so I'm going to keep looking. And the more we look, the more we want. And the more we want, the more we want to take it. Now, that's why God said in the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. That means we are not to want anything that God does not want for us. And some things are very clear that God does not want for us. Other things we have to seek God about, and God will show us through our prayers and through circumstances the things that he does and doesn't want for us. But he had made this very clear to Achan, This was not for him to take. And yet, the more he looked, the more he coveted, and eventually he took it. And that's the process he followed. 
He looked, he coveted, he took. And that's what James 1 is telling us. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We look and we see the appeal. We want it. It makes sense to us. It looks good. We get benefit from it. Even though it might not be exactly what God wants for me, we can just kind of go around the edge this one time. And that's where Achan was. That's, if you look at TV, and I'm not encouraging you to do that. There's not a whole lot on TV that's worthwhile. But if you watch TV, there's a whole lot of advertising on TV, probably more than the, than the, uh, the actual programs. But I've had experience in the advertising world, and basically advertising is built around James 1.14. Okay? Think about how they get you to buy stuff. And after you get it home, you ask, why did I buy this? Because they go through this process, okay? They put it where you can see it. They make it look shiny and pretty and appealing and enticing. All right? Now, I am going to ask you this. How many of you have ever gone to Burger King or McDonald's and gotten a hamburger that looks exactly like what they show on TV? Mine usually look like somebody sat on it, okay? It doesn't look like that one on TV. But that's what sin is. It looks enticing to us because that's the way that Satan advertises it. He knows what we want, what we're looking for. So he makes it look good. But instead of that big, juicy, nice hamburger, what we usually end up getting is that little flabby thing. It looks like somebody stepped on it, right? Because the world can't give us good gifts. That only comes from God. So it's not worth it. But the world will use this lust that's in us, our natural tendency to serve and please ourselves, to tempt us. And so we see things, and the more we look at them, the more we focus on them, the more we want them. And that becomes coveting. Now, we were talking about God's provision in Sunday school this morning. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked them. What do we really need as Christians? We need God. That's it. Just God. So when we get our heart and our eyes and our mind set on having something else, that so much that it takes our eyes off God, we've crossed over that line to coveting. That's what causes us to sin, and that's exactly where Achan was. He saw his lust just continued to burn within him, and he couldn't help himself anymore. And he took it. That's what sin does to us. It becomes enticing and it causes us to covet. And then in coveting, we sin. And again, that's why Proverbs 3 tells us not to rely on our own understanding. Because we can't think clearly when we're being tempted. The only answer that we have is the word of God and what God has given us. Hebrews tells us there's no temptation that's taken us that's common to man. That there's not a way of escape that God has already made for us. Okay, And it's all in his word. God can give us an escape out of every temptation. And the first course of action is to stop looking. Turn away. Replace it with something that's better. God. Okay? But sin is enticing. And so we wouldn't be tempted if it wasn't. 
And so Satan uses that to try to draw us away from God and draw us into sin. That's what he did to Achan here. So number one, sin is enticing. Number two, secret sin always affects others. There is no sin that you can commit that only affects you. Secret sin and all sin always affects other people. Look at what we have here in this scenario. In verse 5, again, the people are going out to battle against Ai, a very small city. There was probably less than 20,000 people in the entire city. They probably had an army of about two or 3,000 men. And that's why the people came to Joshua and said, eh, don't worry about it. Send out this little army and we'll destroy them. Look what we just did to Jericho. Now, part of their problem was these men didn't seek God in this, and neither did Joshua. They just figured, hey, look what we did to, Jer- to Jericho. We can do these guys no problem. Piece of cake. Now, I've learned that whenever you approach a task and the first thought in your mind is, yeah, that's going to be a piece of cake, usually there's all kinds of complications and problems that come with it. And it's going to take you three times as long, cost you three times as much, and you'll never get it right. It's because we rely on ourselves, and Israel was relying on themselves at this point. That's the first problem. But the second problem is that there was this sin in the camp. And so they go out against Ai, and they're bringing their weapons, and they think they're just going to waltz in and destroy these people and take over the city. And look at verse 5. It says, And the men of Ai smote them, about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, what's interesting here is for us to remember that there's only two or 3,000 Israelites going out to battle here. It doesn't say that Achan was one of them. So Achan is the one who has committed this sin. He's brought what God calls the accursed thing into the camp. And these two or 3,000 people go out to fight Ai and are defeated soundly. And 36 men lose their lives. 36 men who did not steal from Jericho. Achan's sin affected others. Your sin always affects others. Now the big question here, if it's only one man that sinned, and you read to the end of the passage and it talks about his whole family being killed and burned, (coughs) excuse me, Why would the sin of one person affect so many people? God allowed 36 people to be killed in the battle. He allowed Israel to be defeated, and then his whole family and everything he owned was destroyed at the end of this. Why would God allow one one man's sin to affect so many people? Well, because God had said, you don't bring the accursed thing into the presence of my camp, because when you bring the accursed thing into the camp, my presence is no longer with you. You can't stand against anybody. And it affects everybody. One of the things he was trying to teach Israel is a lesson that the church needs to learn as well. We are all in this together. It is not just about me. It is not my life. My life and what I do affects everybody else. That's the way the church works. And so the principle of one man's sin affecting many is not a new thing. This is a universal truth. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of Adam and Eve. And because Adam sinned, how many of us are sinners now? 
all of us. All of the entire human race from that point on became sinners because of one man's sin. Sin does not just affect the one who commits it. It affects lots of other people. Actually, four times in the Pentateuch, when God was giving Israel the law, he says four times in four different places that he would visit the sins of the fathers unto the children unto the third and fourth generation. Now, what he means by that is he's not going to punish people who didn't commit the sin for three or four generations, but what he is saying is that when you allow sin to come into your life, when you allow sin in your family or in your church or in your camp, the effect of that sin is widespread. It's a ripple effect. And the influence that you have on others will last three or four generations. Because you establish a lifestyle then of sin away from God, and it takes that long to break that cycle. And you see that in the history of Israel. And it happens in our our families and in our lives today. When one man or one woman brings sin into their family and it just becomes a way of life, that way of life permeates the family and continues on to the children and their children and their children. And God says it's going to happen for three or four generations. Now, that's the natural cause of sin. It affects other people. Now, by God's grace, that chain can be broken. But the natural effect of sin is to cause harm to other people. And that's a pattern throughout Scripture. And so for us, as believers in a New Testament church, it applies here as well. If we have secret sins in our life that nobody knows about, it's just a small thing. We think it doesn't affect others, and in fact, that's become the rule that many people live by, even Christians today. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it must be okay. Nobody knows about it, nobody cares about it, it's not affecting anybody, so I'm not going to worry about it. Achan was the only one who knew about his sin, and yet it affected the entire nation of Israel. Thirty-six other men lost their lives, and God called Israel, the whole nation, accursed because of that one man's sin. And it happens that way in the church as well. One person's secret sin can be that accursed thing that causes the church or God's people as a whole to lose the blessing of God because we allow that to be, to, to be there in our lives. Many of us think it's just little sins that don't harm anybody else. Or we'll use the excuse that, well, everybody else is doing it. It's just become the way of life. Even Christians, look at the way Christians are living, so it's not a big deal. Well, the problem is we don't define sin. We don't define what's a little thing or a big thing or important sin or non-important sin. Okay, sin is sin. And sin can be defined this way by doing anything apart from God's will. Okay? The Psalms tell us that the wicked, in their pride... Don't allow God in any of their thoughts. That means that if we have a thought that is absent of God, if we decide something without seeking God, God defines it as wickedness. So it's very easy to enter into sin just by forgetting about God. And the wicked, for the wicked, for the unrighteous, that's a pattern of life, right? Don't need God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Don't need God. 
I can do this. And Christians fall into that pattern as well because we get into this mode of, well, you know, life is going along, everything's going well. Thanks, God, for the boost. I got it from here. And we make our own decisions. We do our own thing. And that becomes a sin because we ignore God. But God cannot overlook sin. And God does not overlook secret sins, things that nobody else knows about. God did not look, overlook Achan's sin. That was a huge thing to God, and it affected Israel in a very significant way. Now you say, well, it doesn't seem like that big of an issue, except that God commanded them not to take it, and he took it, so he disobeyed. It's just flat-out disobedience. And as Achan's sin affected not just himself, but his entire family and the entire nation of Israel, our sins the ones that we try to keep hidden or the ones that nobody knows about or the ones we just don't want to think about affect other people. The sins that we hide in our lives affect this church. Now, you might think, well, no, no, it doesn't because nobody knows. God knows. And who's the head of this church? God. The blessings that come through this church and in this church come from him. And just like he abandoned or he basically said, I'm not going to be with you if you hold this sin in your lives. Israel didn't know about it. Achan was the only one that knew. And yet all of Israel was cursed. And the same principle applies to churches as well because we are one body in Christ. That's why we have to, to relate this to our fellowship because we are one body. We are not individual members all separate from each other. They just happen to get together to worship. We're one body in Christ. What we do in our personal lives affects people in their lives. It affects our worship. It affects our fellowship. It affects everything about the church. And it's very possible for one person's sin to cause God to remove his hand of blessing from an entire church, just as he did from Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 6 and 7, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. They had all kinds of problems and sins in their life. But he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Now, leaven is yeast, and Paul many times alluded to this fact of leaven being like sin. And all it takes is a little bit. Those of you who do any baking know that you don't put a whole cup of yeast into a, 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 bread, a loaf of bread to make it work, okay? And I'm going to tell you from experience, it doesn't work. You don't mix up the yeast with the flour. I've done it. I don't even want to tell you how it turned out, okay? But it's not good. So the principle is it only takes a little bit, and it permeates the entire thing. And that's what Paul says. Don't you know a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? A little sin affects all of it. In Galatians 5.9, he warns believers not to tolerate false teaching. And again, he uses this term, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It only takes one little thing to affect everybody. So just as God judged Israel because of one man's sin, the whole body of the church feel the effects of that sin. Your sin does not just affect you, it affects other people. Now, if we had that thought alone in mind more often, I think we would live differently. And that's what God's showing us here. 
We need to keep that thought in mind more often because your personal life affects others in this church and in your family and in your workplace and in any other sphere of influence or fellowship that you have. So your secret sin affects everyone. Third, your secret sin will always be revealed by God, either to yourself or to others. Your secret sin will always be revealed by God to yourself or to others. If you look at verse 10, Joshua goes in these previous verses and he goes to God. He says, what's going on? Have you left us? Why have you abandoned us? You said you were going to be with us and now all of this is falling apart and people are going to start making fun of us because God's not here. What if you, and he's starting to sound like <coughs> excuse me, the original Israelites when God took them into the wilderness and they're going, God, what would you do? Bring us out here to die? We don't have any food and water. And now Joshua's going, God, what are you doing? You brought us into the promised land. It'd be better for us not to have crossed over Jordan and just stay over there and not get the promised land than to come here and have people kill us. He lost his faith. And God says to him, no, Joshua, get up, stop whining, stop complaining. The problem is sin. There's sin in the camp. And God revealed to Joshua that there was sin, but he didn't tell him who it was. Okay? He did tell him what it was. I'm sure at this point, Achan is probably starting to wonder, okay, 36 men were killed, we just lost this battle after a great victory. Is it my fault? Right? Is it my fault? Or, I don't know, maybe he was just so hardened, he's like, he didn't care. But have you ever thought that? I'm not saying we should go around blaming ourselves for all the problems that churches have or other people in our family have. What I'm saying is, it should be a challenge to us to be thinking, okay, God, is there something in my life? Is it me? Remember when Jesus was at, his, at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he sat there, and just before they started, he said, one of you who's going to dip the bread in the sop with me is going to betray me. And that's all he said. And they start looking around, and they're going, is it me? Is it me? I think that's a valid question that we should ask ourselves as believers every day. Is it me? Am I the one? But Achan didn't confess his sin at this point. I don't know if he asked that question or not, but he didn't confess. And then God used Joshua to reveal the sin. God told Joshua, there's sin in the camp, and we're going to find it out. He says, I'm going to show you, Joshua, who it is, but you're going to bring everyone together for this process. Now, put yourself in Achan's situation just for a minute. Okay, if God came to us as the elders of the church said, there's somebody in the church that has this sin in their life that's affecting everybody else. And we're going to line everybody else by group and by family and then go man by man, and God's going to show us who that individual is. Would you start getting a little nervous if you knew you were guilty? And I think at that point, I'd probably go, you know what, it was me. Or maybe Achan didn't actually believe God would know. I don't know. But he still didn't confess. And when Joshua told Israel, okay, we're going to line up. We're going to go tribe by tribe. And then God showed him. It's the tribe of Judah. 
All right, well, we're going to narrow it down to Judah. And then we're going to narrow it down to this family group. And then we're going to narrow it down to this family. And then we're going to narrow it down to Achan. And when Joshua walked up in front of Achan, how do you think he felt? Now, I'm not saying God does this all the time. And somebody's going to come up to you at the end of church and go, you have a sin in your life and God revealed it to me. But shouldn't we be in the same mindset that God will reveal our sin to someone. He'll reveal it to us, obviously, first, because we know we've sinned. But if we don't confess it, if we don't get it right, eventually God's going to bring it out. You've all heard that phrase, be sure your sin will find you out, right? God knows. That's the whole point. You can't hide sin from God. God knows. So there's no unknown sin. There's no such thing as actually a secret sin. God knows. And he's going to reveal it to you first. But if you don't deal with it, he may reveal it to somebody else who will help you deal with it, just as he did with Achan. And you come to this question, you go, okay, why didn't God just come to to Joshua and say, it's Achan? Why did he submit the whole congregation to this testing? And I think it's because of what I already said. At that point, everybody in Israel is now looking at themselves going, is it something I did? Am I not right with God? And as I said before, that's a valid question we need to ask ourselves all the time. And we're going to partake of communion before, uh, at the end of our service today. And remember, I always give you the instructions from the Apostle Paul that says, examine yourself. See, that's that question. Is it me, God? Is there something in my life that's not right? And it's not just before we take communion. That's a question we should be asking ourselves before God all the time. It's a self-examination process. Because God cannot tolerate sin in his people. And he will reveal it to you. But if you don't want to listen, he will reveal it to somebody else. So it will be dealt with. And even if you go your entire life with that sin not being known among people, God is going to stand before you and hold you accountable when you go to him in judgment. You cannot escape sin. Can't happen. And so if we have hidden sin in your life, it's always best to confess it to God and repent it before he has to go public with it. Okay, and we don't get to make that decision. We can't say, well, God, you know, don't tell anybody. That's his choice. And if he chooses to reveal it to people through circumstances that we thought never could happen, isn't that the way God works? Through circumstances that we thought never could happen? We're never safe protecting our sin. The best practice is to ask God to reveal it to us so we can confess and repent before him so that it doesn't have to be exposed before others. What if God stood you up in the front here and took a big chalkboard and wrote all of your sins out so everybody could see them? You go, oh man, I'd be embarrassed. I'd be really ashamed. Well, I would too, because none of us are innocent. And that's why it's so important for us to confess our sin. 
The psalmist actually asked God in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I'm missing something, maybe. Show me if I'm missing something, is what the psalmist said. In Psalm 19, David wrote, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. I mean, there are sins in our life that we commit that we may not even be aware of. We may not even think about it. Remember, I said the psalmist tells us that if we don't regard God in all our thoughts, that is wickedness. We just may go along our whole day and not think about God once. And then at the end of the day, go, oh, yeah, I forgot to pray. Well, I'll pray before I go to bed. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Psalm 32, we read this this morning. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. See, that leads us to confession. When we realize that we can't stand before God, we have no audience with God if we keep sin in our heart. The psalmist also says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We have cut off our communication line with God by concealing sin. So we shouldn't wait for God to expose our secret sin. We need to take care of it with him now, immediately. Or God will do it another way. That's the third lesson. Number four, hidden sin always has consequences. Just because we confess our sins does not mean that God is going to remove all consequences. Sin has consequences, even for believers. It doesn't have eternal punishment for believers because Christ has taken care of that. But it still has consequences. The important thing is not trying to avoid the consequences by hiding the sin. The important thing is, even with the consequences, restoring my relationship with the Lord the way it should be. Because I'll take the consequences and God with it, rather than have an easier life with no God. There's no hope there. God called the things that Achan took the accursed thing. If you look at verse 11, he says, Israel has sinned. It's interesting, he didn't say Achan has sinned. He said, all of Israel has sinned. And they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing and have stolen. The word accursed there is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it means dedicated to destruction. And it actually means dedicated to God or per God's instructions for destruction. God wanted it destroyed. That's what he had made it for. That's what his purpose for was for it. And so that's what they had to do in carrying out his instructions. And so God calls it the accursed thing. And because the accursed thing had been brought into the camp of Israel, all Israel was accursed. Now, what we learn here is this. God called Israel accursed because in their midst was the accursed thing, the actual sin, the actual items that represented the sin. But because Achan was attached to those things and Achan was also attached to the congregation of Israel, Israel was now attached to that accursed thing and all Israel now was accursed in God's eyes. Because of the association. 
when we conduct ourselves or when we connect ourselves to something that God calls accursed, we have also connected ourselves to the consequences of the accursed thing. We don't escape that. As I mentioned, our sin deserves death. Romans 3 tells us that very clearly. The wages of sin is death. I'm sorry, it's Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. Okay? So when we attach ourselves to things that God calls sins, we have attached ourselves to death, the wages of sin. That's what happened with Achan. He had attached himself to this sin. He was attached to Israel, and so it affected everyone. But when we connect ourselves to something that God condemns, we have condemned ourselves, and there are consequences that come with that condemnation. If we're not saved, eternal death in hell. That's the punishment. If we are saved, there's still consequences because God has to chastise his people. He cannot tolerate sin. Achan comes and confesses at the end of this account. In fact, Joshua says to him in verse 25, Joshua said, why? I'm sorry, in verse 20, uh, verse 20, and Achan, no, I'm sorry, verse 19, thank you. And Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. What Joshua didn't say was, come and confess and there won't be any consequences. Now, think about that if you raised your kids that way. All right, if you tell me everything you do wrong, I'm not going to discipline you or spank you, okay? You won't have any time out. You won't have any consequences. Just confess. Tell me all the things that you do wrong. You'd be standing there listening to your child confess sins the entire day, and then they'd just go do more because there's no deterrent. See, the consequences are a deterrent. I shared with you in the bulletin the idea that the reason we put people in jail when they're criminals, when they break the law, is to be a deterrent to keep other people from committing crime. Why do people commit crime? Because they think they won't get caught and there won't be consequences. If they understood the consequences and realized that they will be caught, there will be consequences, people wouldn't commit crime. And that's the way we have to think. We cannot sin or attach ourselves to something that is sin in God's eyes and not have consequences. We can't sin or continue to sin and go to God every day and say, God, I'm sorry I sinned, so that's taken care of, so tomorrow I can go do it again. See, in Romans chapter 6, Paul said, what shall we say then? If shall we continue in sin that God's grace may abound? God forbid. He said, you don't, you don't keep going back to it just because God's going to forgive you. See, that's the wrong pattern. Go to 1 John for me, because I'm gonna, we're going to finish up here. But in 1 John, God shows us what the pattern of a believer is, even when we sin. Okay? 1 John chapter 1. As you're turning there, there are always consequences for sin because sin has natural consequences. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Sin is fire. You cannot mess with it and not get burned, period. Okay, that's the message. Sin brings lost opportunities that cannot be revisited. Sin brings lost relationships that sometimes cannot be mended. And sin brings lost blessings that cannot be recovered. There are always consequences for sin. 
We lose God's blessing in our life when we sin. When we confess our sin, it doesn't remove the consequences, but it does give glory to God. Go to 1 John chapter 1. For chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. From chapter 1, verse 5, what do we see? God is holy. God has called us to holiness as his people. God is holy. There's the standard. Go on, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. You cannot have fellowship with God and live in sin as a pattern of your life, period. That's what he says. If you think you have fellowship with God and you live in a pattern of sin, doing your own things, doing it your own way, getting your own stuff, living for what you want, verse 6 says, you're a liar and you don't do the truth. You don't even know the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What is the light? Psalm 119, 105. Finish the verse for me. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is the light. God's word shines in our hearts to show us our sin and then show us how to correct it. 2 Timothy says, all scripture is good for correction and reproof, rebuke, okay? So we need to look at God's word as the mirror of our lives to see the sin that's in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word will expose what you really are if you're serious about looking into it to see what you really are. That's called walking in the light. So John says, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship who? One with another. Not just God, but with each other. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. All of us, without exception, are sinners. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we don't sin. We sin. Because we fall short of giving God glory in everything. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have come short in glorifying God in everything. That's what the verse is saying. And so how often in our lives do we forget about God? Do we make our own decisions? Do we do the little things? We tell the little white lie. We don't think about it. And yet in each one of those things, we have fallen short of giving God the glory. We sin. And that's why verse 9 is there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is the mark of someone who truly believes and understands their standing before God. I know Christ has paid the ultimate punishment. I'm not going to go to hell. But I still sin, and I still have to confess it to God because I'm sorry. 
That's called repentance. Now, how do we glorify God in repenting and in confessing our sin? Let's go back to the scenario of secret sin. I already told you other people are affected. There are always consequences for sin. And so when people start seeing consequences of sin and start looking around and they don't see any sin, they go, God, you're not right. This is not fair. It's not just for God to punish us this way when nobody's done anything wrong. Right? And we say that because we don't know about the sin in other people's lives. Now, the Bible defines Attributing to God evil, that's called blasphemy. And so you start to see a little bit why this secret sin is so much worse than just a regular sin, if you want to call it that. Because now we have given people opportunity without even knowing it to blaspheme the name of God and call on him saying that he is guilty of something that he's not guilty of because we're making uh, accusations without the facts. But when we confess our sin, then we acknowledge to God, I deserve the consequences because I sinned. And God is still righteous and he's still just in carrying out those consequences in our life. And he receives glory even in the suffering that he inflicts on us for our sin because that's just and right in his sight. And so not just confessing our sin to avoid consequences, it's confessing our sin and accepting the consequences. That gives glory to God. After David's sin with Bathsheba, he went to God in Psalm 51, he said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purge me with hyssop. That means whip. Okay? There are consequences to sin. We can't escape them. Now, if we don't care about glorifying God, then we're in trouble already. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, The life of a believer in everything we do, we're to glorify God, even as we eat and drink. That's our purpose. So if we don't care about glorifying God, we've got bigger problems. So just because we confess our sins, we don't avoid chastisement and consequences, but we do give God the glory he deserves even as he chastises us. Unconfessed sin brings greater consequences in the long run. That's the problem. Because not only will you still receive the chastisement from God, but it continues to affect other people because it's unconfessed sin. And you have not just broken fellowship with God, you've broken fellowship with other people. So you're affecting your relationship with God and everybody else around you. Now, there's a saying that goes like this. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Okay? Now, we don't use, that's not a, Bible truth, by the way. I'm not telling you to live by that rule. What I'm saying is we, re- we take that and we say, well, you know, if, if mom's happy, then the attitude, the atmosphere of the whole house is better, right? Well, that applies to all of us, actually. You know, and it doesn't matter whether it's mom or dad or one of the kids or whoever. If somebody gets out of the wrong side of the bed, it affects everybody. 
See, and the, the principle behind that is exactly what God's telling us. When you're wrong, when you have sin in your life and your relationship with God is a mess, there's no way you can get along with anybody else, and so your fellowship and your relationship with them is a mess. And so you actually inflict suffering on other people that doesn't need to be inflicted beyond maybe what the consequences of the sin is because you can't make the relationship right until you make it right with God. That's what unconfessed sin brings. And that's why we're talking about secret sin because there's so much more to it than what we want to make of it. So you see how unconfessed sin is bigger than just an open sin, really. Because there's extended consequences. There's effects that are uh, consequences that affect other people without us even realizing it. Now they suffer. God may be removing his blessing from a church or from a family. And we don't know why. Everybody's looking around going, what's going on? And in your heart, you know it's me. And other people may not understand why God's chastisement is. And so they'll start blaming God, and that's called blasphemy. Achan's sin had consequences that affected the whole camp of Israel, and eventually it cost him his life because he didn't repent. He confessed, but he didn't repent. And everything that was associated with him, God said, is destroyed. And if you read the list, we're not going to look at that, but if you read the list, it includes his animals and his tent. God couldn't have that influence at all in the camp of Israel. And God cannot have that kind of evil influence in a church. So here's the question that I'm going to leave you with. Is there a secret sin in your life? Now, I ask you that, not just for this reason, but this is a great reason to start examining yourself because we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And your secret sin will not just hurt you, it will hurt other people in this church. It breaks relationships. It causes a loss of God's blessing. Now, we have one of two responses. We can say, okay, Lord, I am so sorry. I need to make things right. Or we can say, yeah, that's a bunch of hooey. I don't agree with that at all. I can do what I want. It doesn't affect anybody else. That's the only choices we have. There's no middle ground. So we either get right with the Lord or we're not right with anybody. And it affects everybody. So before we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Bible says we're to examine ourselves. That's what Paul says, and this is why. Number one, are you a believer? Truly, one of God's children. Are you truly saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And does your life show it? If so, is there sin that you need to take care of before God now so that your relationship with him will be restored and you truly can have fellowship one with another as we rejoice around the remembrance of the Lord's Supper? This is for believers only. 
The Bible says that if you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink damnation to yourself. But we're remembering what brings us together in fellowship. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we're all hopeless. We have no relationship with anybody. It's only in Christ that we find that bond of unity. So today we've seen what God knows about your sin. And you've seen about what God does with your sin. And so the question is now, what are you going to do with it? We're going to take, I'm going to ask um, Sean to come up. We're going to take a minute of silent prayer. And then we're going to partake of communion together. But in that prayer, I implore you, just pray that prayer that the psalmist did. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. And if you know there's something there that needs to be taken care of, let's do it right now. And then we can rejoice in fellowship together around the Lord's table. Father, you know our hearts. You know what kind of people we truly are and what we hide. There's nothing that's not exposed to you. There's nothing that we can hide from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us now and help us to repent, to turn to you for, for forgiveness of sin, that we might be clean before your sight. We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And I pray that you won't help us to use that as an excuse to then live in sin. Lord, I pray that the fellowship with you, with each other, might be sweet, might be what it should be now as we partake of the Lord's table together, as we remember the sacrifice that he made on our behalf for these very sins that we confess before you. And Lord, make us white as snow as you've promised so that we can truly rejoice in what Jesus has done and what we have to look forward to because of the fact that he is alive and he will come back for us. Just bless us now. I pray that you would be honored as we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper together. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask that you come up row by row. We're going to start right here in the front. Just go row by row, and then we'll start here in the front when the last row on this side We have the bread and the juice up here. Just come up and get your bread and juice and then go back to your seat. When everybody has it, then we will continue together.
As we partake of the bread and juice together, we are celebrating the Lord's death, but not just his death, his resurrection, the sacrifice that he gave for us. The bread represents his body that was broken. The the juice represents his blood that was shed for us for the remission of sins. That's what the Bible says. And so Paul says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Brandon, I'm going to ask if you would pray for the bread, please. Amen. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Shall we eat together? After the same manner also, he took the cup. George, would you pray for the cup, please? After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Shall we drink together? For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And he is coming. Amen. I'm looking forward to that. And all of us who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins through his blood, have something to look forward to in that. We're going to close our service today with hymn number 359. I'm going to ask the guys if they would join me me back up here. 359. My faith looks up to thee. I hope that's the truth 